1: Did you ever think that playing or working with an amateur mind or a beginner's approach is probably the best thing that could happen to you? What if someone said that getting off the highway road is the best way to catch unseen beauty and discover the best places one could ever see? Would you do that? How does this all fit into creating innovative software products? Join our host, Shivaguru from PM Power Consulting, in conversation with Sharad Sharma co-founder of iSpirit Foundation, who's worked extensively in software R&D and has run multiple India R&D centers. He talks about his multi-threaded career, as he describes it, through traversing multiple S-curves. If any of our listeners have surfed waves, you know how to pick the right one, ride it, get off and ride the next one, right? And if you simply want to know what this is all about, listen on.
0: Sharad, welcome to this episode of the Software People Stories. I'm happy that uh, you are able to spend some time in sharing your story and your perspectives that will be useful for our listeners. So as you know, we have been featuring the stories of people who've been associated with software-based solutions, both creation and consumption, and their own journeys in terms of what they learned or what worked, what didn't work, etc. So to kick that off, if you can give a brief introduction of how you got into software and what you've been doing, we can take the conversation further from there.
2: Thanks Shiv uh, for inviting me for this. Uh, So, you know, I have many threads in my career. So one thread is that I've been part of software R&D kind of settings for a long time. Uh, So that's been one thread in my career. Uh, Another thread is that I have somehow been involved in uh, setting up or running the India R&D centers, uh, so that's another thread. I've been passionate about software products and, uh, and at least in the last 10 years I've been you know, active uh, in the ecosystem trying to help make India a software product nation. Uh, so there are all these threads in my career and then the final one is that I've been kind of lucky I'm an electrical engineer by training but got interested in CPM operating system you know while I was still doing my engineering and that led me to Unix and mm. a bunch of other kind of operating system kernel stuff and uh, and that was a good timing so that was a good S-curve uh, at that time and I've been part of you know, three, four S-curves like that. And so, you know, by accident or by design, I managed to ride, you know, some of these S-curves, you know, from early before the first inflection to somewhere you know near the second inflection. So, so there are all these things that go on. I don't have a clean way to describe myself. Uh, so I thought I'll kind of put all of these out there. <laughs> so they'll give you a chance to pick any of these threads and build the conversation around.
0: Okay. In fact, yeah, one thing that I was curious about was the, the S-curves that you mentioned. While you also said you didn't know whether it was uh, by design or by default, uh, that was something that um, I'm also curious and I'm sure uh, our listeners would also like to know. Because many times in our careers, we face these questions of what should I do next? Or how can I leverage what I have? Or should I go for something totally new? Or right. do I, how do I ride the wave? Or how do I create a wave? So what have been your experiences around these inflection points?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. You know, so I think, uh, uh, you know, when I was uh, young, I used to read this IEEE spectrum. Some of you may, some of our listeners may remember that. And within that, there used to be a regular column by a person, his name was Bob Robert, lucky and he used to write very well and uh, several of his columns uh, focused on the fact that one way of thinking of engineering is like surfing so he used to say look uh, like surfers you have to pick the right wave to surf and uh, now if you think this is the right wave and others don't you know it doesn't help and on the other hand, others think this is a good way when you sit it out. That also doesn't, help. you know, so he, he used to tongue in cheek talk about how engineering has been reduced to really thinking about these S curves in a, in a much more sensible fashion. I kind of, I used to be a student chairman of my IEEE chapter, right? So, uh, so I kind of got influenced by that thinking very early on. And initially I think it was all by accident. And then, uh, I said, hey, this is really fun. How can one think about this more deeply? And then, uh, uh, you know, I realized that at any point in time, take today, you know, there are many possible trends, you know, what could be the Gartner hype cycle in the early stages that you could pick up on. And uh, But the question is, which one is the right one? And that's one facet of picking up an S-curve. The second facet of picking up an S-curve is something more internal to you. Uh, you know, so how do you build conviction? Uh, first of all, let me step back here for a minute. How do you shun the fit-in mindset? Because my sense is that anything that's already come in Times of India is not an S-curve you should write. If, if your goal is to pick an S-curve that you'll write, it shouldn't have come in Times of India or any mainstream publication. Because mm-hmm. It's already too late. Right. So then how do you train yourself to kind of shun a fit in mindset? Right. So, so that becomes one aspect of this. Second is how do you then develop knowledge about some of the candidates that you have, you know, without fully committing. And that to me means that you must become a hobbyist of some kind or volunteer, you know, in an open source project or otherwise. To kind of develop some working knowledge about what is happening in that space. And remember, since it's not gone mainstream, there isn't a lot of usually information that is available otherwise. So the only way to collect information is to dirty your hands, right? And so you should have a kind of a mindset of dirtying your hands, right? And uh, because everything is not nicely packaged, it's not in a fully kind of a formed state at that time. And third is then you have to build conviction in whatever you are betting on. And uh, you are doing this before it's reached the first inflection point. So it's a hard kind of a bet that you're making in the sense that there are many pros and cons. And then how do you build conviction, both from your head as well as from your heart? And so so in my mind, uh, you know, these are the three elements then that came together. Avoid fitting in. Dirty your hands, being a hobbyist and dirtying your hands and then spending some time building conviction. And then once you build a conviction, then you stick with it because at that point in time, you don't know whether it'll be successful or not successful. So you got to write it out for some time. And then if that turns out to be right, then you see this first inflection coming in and then, you know, things become a lot more fun because things start moving very quickly. And then towards the later part of, uh, you know, of my career, I learned that while that is all good and fine, learning how to dismount an S-curve is equally important. So otherwise you just stick with it too long, right? And uh, so, so that then requires literally having a distrust of the institutional capacity to reinvent right so because by now you are in an institution which is wedded to that s-curve and although the s-curve is reaching the second infection you know the institute and the institution is facing that challenge you know they are talking about reinventing themselves and frankly in our tech industry as you know very few of them manage to reinvent themselves and so you must distrust the ability of the institution to reinvent itself. And instead of changing the institution, you are changing the S curve. And that requires skills in dismounting as well. So a long answer to your short question.
0: Very interesting and relevant. In fact, when you talked about being a hobbyist, I just remember recently I was reading that um, we should not aim to be professionals, but amateurs. The justification given was that amateurs enjoy what they are doing. And then when you start enjoying, then you put in more, you learn more, you try to innovate because you want to express yourself. And then you're not uh, bound by a certain stereotype or a certain image that you have to live up to.
2: I'll build on that. You know, what you said is spot mm. on. And I think, you know, another way of putting it is that keep a beginner's mind, right? And I'll relate uh, this story. So, so back in, uh, I, I, I was part of a, a startup there were three co-founders uh, three of us and it was called teltier technology In 2004 you know it became part of cisco i started investing as an angel investor after that right and and from 2004 to 6 everything i touched turned to dust and so in 2006 i restarted with a commitment saying hey i must you know, because I had got into this mode of thinking. I knew what I was doing while I didn't really know what I was doing. Right. And I'm so grateful that everything turned to dust so quickly. So I was forced to face the fact that I didn't know anything about angel. investing, Right. Mm-hmm. And, and then I went down this path and said, okay, no, I must have a beginner's mind. Right. And I feel that in some fields, your success entirely depends on your ability to unlearn on a constant basis mm, see yeah. learning is easy unlearning is hard right and so the only way to be unlearning is to force yourself to keep yourself in a beginner's mind right keep telling yourself as you rightly said that i am not an expert i am actually i am a beginner here <laughs> i must open myself to unlearning and relearning and mm-hmm. that becomes very essential in our life right and especially in a world that is changing so rapidly so i fully resonate with uh, what you said just a little bit
0: yeah that brings me to uh, a couple of questions related to the theme of r and d and products and probably in a ticket from there uh, as a person both member of a team of r and d or as someone who is setting up or leading a team that is into r and d
2: where do you source your ideas from yeah so i i think we live in a problem rich world right so i think ultimately first you have to lock in into a problem uh, so if you can lock in into a problem uh, immerse yourself in that problem uh, reasonably well then the ideas start to flow my own sense is that you know all innovation is purpose-driven, right? So the problem then provides that purpose. And uh, now in some cases, the problem, ideally, the problem should be focused on, you know, a set of people or organizational role or even an individual, right? But sometimes the problem may be uh, about your business, right? Finding, let's say a business model for or a better business model for something that is already being consumed by people, but I, either way, you know, I think framing the problem becomes the starting point, at least for me, for uh, being able to think about innovative ideas. The way I look at this is that, look, if I wake up in the morning and I have an idea which is new to me, I am being creative, but the fact that it's new to me may not be new to the world, right? <laughs> Isn't mm, yeah. It? It It may be already just new to me, but you know, it's come to many, many people. Really, uh, what is then innovation is when I come up with something that's actually relatively new to the world, right? So that's innovation. And then entrepreneurship is when you can take that innovative idea and make a business out of this, right? In other words, convert it to a form where... Uh, you know, either as a product or a service where people are willing to pay for it, right? Because that's the, in a market economy, that's a real test whether that idea is creating value or not. Those, that's one way of thinking about it. But I find coming up with ideas, once you know what you are trying to solve, it becomes a easier process, you know, once you can fix it yourself on the problem that you're trying to solve.
0: But many of the schools of product management initially talk about validating your idea, all this uh, lean models of, of failing fast, failing early and all that. Also talk about running experiments and gathering data, et cetera. There, the two questions that I have are, one is uh, finally you need to take a call on the decision making. And you also referred to whether you use your head or a heart and combination of both, etc. But how do you see the role of gut versus data?
2: So, let, this is an excellent question, uh, Shiv. Because if we go back uh, to the S-curve model, sometimes market data comes only after the first inflection point in the S-curve, right? So, let me give an actual example. See, UPI was launched in August two thousand and sixteen. So, and I'll relate a story about you know about what happened with the marketplace there. But real market data that this may be something worth betting on. Started coming in only from August 2017. Till then, you know, as a S-curve, really it was a flat line at the bottom. Oh. Right? So if you were looking for market data whether or not you should bet on UPI, you would jump in only in August 2017. Now I can mm-hmm. tell you anybody who jumped in after August 2017 doesn't exist today. See, because that this is the other paradigm of technology, is that if you are in the second wave of people, it's a lot harder to succeed. And so so you have this challenge, therefore. So let's back up here further and frame it in the product market fit concept, concept that you talked about or a problem solution fit, if you allow me to say that. So in some sense, we talked about being immersed in the problem. The other is that one must be also immersed often in some kind of a technology, platform or technology inflection that is taking place that helps you solve this problem in a way that was, that is 10x better than what it would have been otherwise. So I'll give a very simple, trivial example. Hailing a taxi is a old problem, right? You could well yes. say it's a 50, 60 year old problem. But the yes. arrival of GPS as public infrastructure allowed Uber to solve it in a way which was 10x or maybe 50x better than what was the old model, right? Where you would call right. the taxi. Right. Now, so therefore, if that method has to be successful, whoever wanted to be the player in this kind of a market needed to be immersed in two things simultaneously. One is the problem domain, which is, you know, all the issues about hailing a taxi. And the second is the technology domain, which is all the messiness associated with using GPS in the early days. It was a very, very messy process at that time, right? Mm, yeah. so, so now, if you really wanted to bring something new to life, you needed to be immersed. You needed to be dual immersed. Singly immersed would not work because then you will not be able to reconcile. You know, you won't be able to build a bridge between, the, you know, GPS and the problem domain. You needed to be, be dual immersed. So okay. that is the challenge. And I think this is not sufficiently talked about in the product market fit, lean startup effectuation circles right now. While if you go back and see almost all successful companies that crack a problem in a way that wasn't cracked before, you would find that they were actually dual immersed. So that immersion in those two domains becomes very important. And you can frankly see this happening in India. You know, I think, for example... You have these SaaS companies. Uh, you know, they need to be, let's say there's capillary. Capillary needs to be immersed in the retail domain because that's where their customers are. But they also need to understand, let's say, the data part of this and some of the data science stuff that is happening, uh, you know, which is relatively new. So they have to be dual immersed in these two domains, right? That's okay. usually true for any business application-oriented SaaS company. But if you are a developer tool SaaS company, then the distance between these two things is much smaller. Because okay. if you're selling to another developer, you can step into their shoes empathetically very easily. Plus, you know, what are the trends that are driving that area which would allow you to solve this problem in a radically better way. And therefore, if you look at the Indian experience in the SaaS space in the business applications SaaS space, The largest company that we have is Zoho, you know, which is what 600 million, you know, ARR or so. And they are the ones who got into this space very early. The second largest company is Freshworks, which is about 200 million. And so if you now see all our SaaS companies in a way put together are roughly the size of Zoho, all the companies, if you take Freshworks and put them together, they're roughly the size of Freshworks. So now what does this indicate to you? This indicates that our industry is in every new generation of startups is not producing a big winner. But now, on the other hand, look at developer tools, SaaS. You had uh, Little iLabs, $15 million exit. You had Minjar, which, you know, 12 to 80 months ago, had an exit, $50 million exit. You have Browser Stack, which raised $50 million, likely to have at least a $500 million exit. You have Julia in India, which is certainly a billion-dollar company. Every new wave is producing a company which is substantially larger than the largest company of the previous wave. Now, you can say, why is this difference existing? And my hypothesis is that the only reason you have this difference is because it's a lot easier to be dual-immersed in the field of developer tools than it is to be dual-immersed in the field of business applications. And without dual immersion, you don't create valuable companies, right? Uh, So that's, again, you know, kind of a mental framework that I have that helps me think about product market fit and lean startups and effectuation and things like that.
0: Yeah, I think that's a very comprehensive way of looking at it. Two things that I picked up from what you said was, um, one, you need an infrastructure, like the example of GPS that you gave, or if I can extrapolate the open source contributions and things that you mentioned as a collective knowledge base that one can tap into or build further upon. Now, as a person who's trying to solve it, whether it is a startup or even within an enterprise, what should be the percentage? Because open source, everybody talks about consuming and very few in terms of contributing. Say, if you take the larger population in India. So where should they spend time or how much of infrastructure should they create Or should they be featured in Times of India first, for example, or work on just applying these and creating solutions?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. So first of all, remember, our industry has several layers, right? So let's take our Android phone as an example. We have a choice of building apps for Android. Somebody has a choice of, you know, working for Google and doing Android OS development. And then ultimately, Android is built on the Linux kernel. So somebody can work on the open source Linux kernel. Now the people who work on these three levels may have come out from the same engineering college, but they're not the same. They're completely right. different. Right. And you cannot, I, and I, I think people select relatively early, uh, as to which of these levels there they'll operate on. And if they find a personality match with that level, they stick with it and, you know, and I don't think you can actually move from one to the other. For, for example, you know, if you go back in time a few years back, uh, Apple's battery performance, iPhone's battery performance was very good. So Google started looking at, hey, how do we have the same, you know, and meanwhile, Android battery performance sucked at that time, right? It wasn't an app problem. It was obviously an Android OS problem. But actually, yeah. when you look deeper into this, it wasn't even Android OS problem. It was a Linux kernel problem. Okay, So Google went to the Linux community and say, hey, can you not improve power management for the Linux kernel? Which, of course, they did. And that took about a year. Then it had to be reflected in the Android release. So that took about a year. And then the apps had to embrace this. And now, last year, Android battery performance far outstrips iPhone's battery performance. And, you know, Hmm. of course, that created the... The situation where iPhone, you know, had to slow down the phones to give the pretense that their battery performance is not as bad. And that created a PR disaster for Apple, right? Right? Uh, But this is the backstory to this. Now, in this environment, the person who worked on the power management for Linux kernel saw this reach, you know, be used in the hands of the customers two, two and a half, three years down the line the kind of personality that you need for delayed gratification is completely different from the personality that you need for app development, where you can get feedback in an instant, relatively speaking. So the person who can operate in the app kind of a domain may not be happy in the Linux kernel domain and vice versa. And of course this has institutional implications because Every institution, whether it's an open source network or it's a corporate entity has to discriminate between good versus great. If you're an app developer, then good versus great comes. The feedback comes from your customers. But if you're doing Linux kernel work, then you can't wait for customer feedback. That's going to come three years later. Right. So that feedback comes from your peers. So that means you must have a culture which says, Hey, my job as a peer. Let's say both of us were peers, my job is to call out your bullshit without regard to your feelings. That culture is completely different from the culture in an app based organization. So, I think, you know, to answer your question, if your mission is to build the best app, my suggestion is don't bother in contributing to Linux kernel. Let the Linux kernel guys take care of that. So I think the, in other words, what I'm trying to say is that the people who build the infrastructure, they're a different breed from the people who build the applications or people who build in, if you think of it as a three layer stack, then the people who build the OS and uh, we must just recognize that and help people move to the right part. And this is, by the way, not just true for software. This is true. Let's take another field. This is also true for electronics. Let's say you're an electronics engineer and you work for Siemens Industrial Electronics, and another friend of yours goes to Sony Consumer Electronics. Then, five years later, they can't switch at all, right? And you don't hear of any switches happening. While technically both are electronics, they actually are very different, uh, you know, when you get into the mud pit, you know, in terms of the characteristics, organizational characteristics, personality characteristics that you have. So I think people have to be thoughtful about where they attach themselves to uh, not chase money because ultimately in the long haul they can only be successful if they're doing what comes naturally to them and therefore fits their personality and the personality types archetypes that you need at different players are actually substantially better.
0: see that um, also brings me to one of my favorite questions that I ask most guests is about the advice for people who are considering entering IT. Whether they are freshers or students or people who are in their mid-career, I got in here, but then like you said, I've not found my calling. How do I change? Now, added to this is also something that uh, I have also noticed interacting with many uh, aspiring entrepreneurs, at least in Bangalore, you find that I have an idea for an app. Can I become an entrepreneur? And uh, the point that you mentioned about contributing to open source and learning from that within your hands before you know where your expertise is or your expertise being peer acknowledged versus just because I have an idea, I have uh, brilliant academic credentials, can I just jump in? So what would be your advice to people considering jumping into IT? And of course, there are these doomsayers who say that AI and ML is going to take
2: away all IT jobs. See, the short answer is that if you're doing something that kind of jives with you, then for you to rise up the competence hierarchy and be good at it is a lot easier. And if you're at the top of anything, any competence hierarchy, you will make a fair amount of money. So, so let's take a non-IT example, right? One, one can be a recreational marathon runner. Okay. Or one can be a competitive marathon runner. So if one has to be a competitive marathon runner or a competitive swimmer or a competitive basketball player, it is almost essential that you have the right body type for it. If you're a short guy, a competitive basketball player is a very hard thing to pull off. And so if you have a short torso, then being a competitive swimmer is very hard to pull off, right? And so on and so forth. So at the competitive level, there is almost a requirement that there is a fit between your body type and the competitive sports that you are going to engage in. And what I'm really pointing out is that this is also true for who you are, for your own personality type and the space that you're going to be in. Now, we've been in the last 20, 25 years in the IT industry, we discouraged this thinking because we were so short of people. We said, let any warm body come. And it's okay. Don't worry about this fitment. We need more, you know, swimmers. Even if you're not the right body type, just come in, you know, and it, and it did work out for most people, but now certainly, you know, there is a culling that is happening and it is becoming more important for you to rise up that competence hierarchy. And if you got to do that, you must choose more carefully. So my request is. As you write, and how do you choose? You choose this by trying out many things and saying, Hey, does this, does this jive with me deeply enough that I'm happy to spend 10, 12 hours for years on end to become really good at this. Now, this mindset is the one that we need as we go forward because the old mindset, which was, Hey, you know what? fungibility is the ask, you know, if I just apply myself, I'm a warm body, something good will happen to me in my career. Those times are definitely going away. So that's what I would say. I think people have to become much more thoughtful uh, about what they select. And therefore, you know, going back to the beginning of our conversation, you know, they must develop this muscle of being a contrarian. Picking something that's unfashionable today in mm-hmm. the hope that it will become fashionable tomorrow. Because if you're chasing the fashion of today, then you are really the warm body mindset. That is not going to work because, uh, you know, that, those, that time is going away. I'm sure you covered some of this in your earlier conversations with others as well.
0: Yeah, wonderful. Uh, This also resonates with, uh, usually I say that it's not about where the puck is now, but then focus on where it is going. So uh, thanks a lot, Sharad. Uh, In the interest of time, I'm sure there are a lot more questions that our listeners would have, or I also have, but we'll reserve
2: that for another conversation. Thank you for inviting me, Shiv. Thank you.
1: like this episode,
0: please subscribe on your favorite podcast client
1: and spread the word in your network. If you'd like to share your
0: story, contact us at podcasts at pm-powerconsulting.com.